When it comes to feminist leadership, some people who are more knowledgeable about this than I am call Srilata Bhatliwala one of the grandmothers of this leadership model. Srilata also has other identities. She was one of Kreya's team of directors as director of feminist leadership and knowledge building. Kreya is an important feminist women's rights organization based in the Global South. Srilata is also a well-known scholar and practitioner when it comes to social movements, as well as the architecture of INGOs. In this podcast episode, Srilata focuses on feminist leadership practices. We talk about social power and how it shows up in organizational dynamics, including in so-called deep structures, a term that was coined by Aruna Rao, who I also interviewed for my podcast, see episode 20, and David Kelleher. Listen in and learn. Hello, and welcome to NGO Soul and Strategy, the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye. My name is Tosca Bruno van Vijfeiken, and I'm the founder and principal consultant at Five Oaks Consulting. I have over three decades of experience helping leaders in civil society manage change, invest in cutting edge leadership development, lead organizational culture change, and strengthen effectiveness. I'm also a thought leader on these issues, including as co-author of the book, Between Power and Irrelevance, The Future of Transnational NGOs, which is read by civil society leaders across the globe. If you are such a leader and want to look change right in the eye, this podcast is for you. Hello, everybody. This is Tosca here at NGO Soul and Strategy. When you ask somebody in civil society or in international development these days about feminist leadership, the name Srilata Batliwala comes up very quickly. People know Srilata as the embodiment of the concept of feminist leadership. So I'm very pleased uh, to have Srilata with me on the show today. Welcome, Srilata. Thank you, Tosca. Happy to be here. Uh, it's my absolute pleasure. So before I offer a proper introduction to Srilata's body of work, there's a bit about uh, feminist leadership that I just wanted to share. And if you want to learn more about the overall concept in an earlier episode with Abby Maxman of Oxfam America, uh, I offered a longer introduction on the background to feminist leadership as a, as a leadership model. But for now, a short introduction. So, and this is really shorthand, feminist leadership typically falls within the realm of models of transformational leadership, which is a school of leadership thinking, which in a nutshell emphasizes the ability of leaders to motivate their organizational employees to find intrinsic meaning in their work. Um, so we're talking about a form of leadership that generates a willingness and energy among staff to go over and beyond what a job requires of them. And in international development and in INGOs, um, 
feminist leadership has been on the rise in the last five years or so. So in this podcast series, I want to interrogate a little bit why feminist leadership is on the rise as a desired leadership model. What are its strengths, but also what are its trade-offs? Because after all, we tend to be a little bit faddish in the INGO community. We tend to kind of imitate each other and uh, go after certain models um, for a while. And maybe it's good to to, um, look at that a little bit more closely. So externally, of course, feminist leadership is focused on creating a gender-just world. But in this series, I want to primarily focus on how feminist leadership shows up in inside organizations, especially in the social change sector. And that is what I primarily want to talk with Srilata today about. So let us talk a little bit about your bio, Srilata. You are a senior advisor in CREA, which stands for Creating Resources for Empowerment in Action an important feminist international human rights organization based in the Global South, and were its director for knowledge building and feminist leadership in the past. Srilata is also the former co-chair of the Board of Gender at Work and of the Board of Just Associates. She is a member of the International Advisory Board for the Institute for Human Rights and Business, And when I first came across Rilata's work, she was a civil society research fellow at the Hauser Center at Harvard University here in the States, where she, together with uh, Alnur Ibrahim and David Brown, wrote a widely cited article on the governance architecture in INGOs. So Srilata, that's a whole body of work that we're going to to talk to you about. So let's first uh, talk a little bit to me, please, about CREA um, and how CREA came to to this body of work on feminist leadership and your role in that. Sure. Um, I always find it hard to uh, describe CREA because it's a very sort of interesting and unusual organization. It's always on the cutting edge because it has never really limited itself to a particular thematic focus or a single objective or goal, you know. Mm. Uh, Its identity is very strongly that it's a feminist organization, but it's a feminist organization that focuses on those it deems as having been excluded or marginalized even by feminist movements. Uh-huh. So they work for they have a very intersectional approach. So they have focused, for instance, their priority constituencies are uh, uh, you know, for instance, uh, trans women, Uh, Sex workers, as you know, sex work has been a very divisive issue in the women's movement. Yes. Uh, Women with disabilities and young women. So right from its inception, CREA was committed to supporting the building of uh, younger women's leadership. Now, of course, that has expanded to support young feminist leadership, which is not the same thing, Mm. uh, because it's about building leadership among, uh, you know, trans women, for instance, intersex people, etc. 
And the reason they focused on that so strongly right from its inception, which is actually 20 years ago, was that they felt that the whole focus uh, in the women's movement was ending up not examining its own sustainability and that there wasn't enough space and uh, sort of opportunity for younger women uh, to come into leadership. And, and therefore, that the whole movement is kind of uh, aging out mm. and that you need to create very conscious processes of not only building this leadership, but also ensuring that new waves of leadership access the history of the older movement, mm. because much of that is not you know, recorded or written down anywhere. Right. The second big leap that they made... Uh, in both their feminist leadership training as well as their gender, sexuality, and rights training, which is also an extremely cutting-edge uh, program that uh, Kriya has developed, and it's you know world famous now. It's probably the most cutting-edge you know institute on gender and sexuality because, for instance, it ruptures the idea that uh, gender and sexuality are one and the same thing. It shows that you know, the way power structures operate uh, in constructing and uh, policing sexuality Mm. uh, is not exactly the same as the power structures that construct and police gender roles, you see. So they really uh, disrupt a lot of the sort of mainstream understanding of these concepts. And finally, I'll say a word about their pedagogy which is to me uh, the most important aspect of what Kriya does in its, in its leadership building work. You know, uh, if you look at all the sort of leadership training modules that existed, say 15 years ago, they were very instrumental. It was all about how to, you know, how do I build a, a proposal? How do I do resource mobilization? How mm-hmm. do I manage my organization? Mm-hmm. How do I create a strategic plan? So it's all about how to. Kriya focuses on why. What is the purpose? And it busts this idea that activists don't want to learn theory and they can't grasp theory. So keep it simple, stupid because they're activists. And in fact, it says that you can't act differently if you don't think differently. And if you have to think differently, you need to access the latest thinking, the latest you know, conceptual frameworks, the tools of analysis. You have to be a political thinker. And only then you can be a political actor. Interesting. So in our institutes, our pedagogy focuses on you understanding core concepts like power. Mm. How do you break down and understand power and how mm. it operates in society? Core concepts like sexuality, core concepts like gender. The idea that heterosexuality is a construct, just like gender is, for example. Uh, the idea that patriarchy is not historical inevitability, that it's a very recent form of social organization. Mm. Uh, I I teach a module called The Rise of Patriarchy, and they are blown away to discover this thing is only 10,000 years old. And before that, 
all societies were matrilinear, you know. Mm-hmm. So we go to concepts, we go to analysis, we go to new thinking, and we try to shift the way people are thinking about and looking at issues because we know and we've seen that that then shifts how they act. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting, right? That's right after about that. Kriya. So okay. my second question is very much, I think we should first talk a little bit about how you have conceptualized power and particularly social power. So how it works in society, social power that is. And I'm also obviously interested in how it works within organizations. So tell us a little bit about social power. Well, first of all, I want to uh, be very clear that this is not my conceptualization. Okay. Uh, I am very, very indebted to uh, the work of Aruna Rao and David Gallagher and Gender at Work, as well as the work of my uh, wonderful colleagues from Just Associate, Valerie Miller and uh, Lisa Venaklassen, their work in their, you know, really benchmark book, People, Power and Politics. And the work of, you know, older political scientists and philosophers like Foucault and uh, many others and uh, the work that's come out of Ideas Sussex. Um, So I love this very simple definition of power that Aruna and uh, David developed, which is, uh, and I added something to it by drawing from Foucault. So they defined power, social power, as who gets what, the distribution of resources, Mm -hmm. who does what, the distribution of labor, and who decides what. So it's about decision-making power and control. And to this, I added, who frames the agenda? Because I think what Foucault taught us is that particularly in modern societies, the power to frame the agenda, to decide what gets discussed, for example, to decide what's on the front page of the newspaper and what is on page seven, mm-hmm. yeah? Or what's in the uh, you know headlines in the TV news and what isn't. That's a huge source of power, deciding yes. what is, will be discussed, what's important. You know, framing people's thinking yes, is right really about bat. this. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is the agenda setting power. So this is a definition of power that I find works very well. And then I draw a lot, for instance, on the work of uh, 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 Lisa and Valerie in looking at the three spaces in which power operates. So we all tend to, especially in the NGO sector, you know, and in social movements, we've tended to focus a lot on shifting power in visible public spaces, Mm -hmm. public institutions, you know, changing policies, changing laws, um, you know, so those kind of public institutions of government, police, army, courts, etc. This is what we've tended to focus on. But I think the power of feminist analysis of power has really brought to our awareness the concept of the private spaces in which power operates and how often our access to power in the public space is determined by our power in the private space. Mm. So this is you know, how power operates in very intimate spaces like the family, inside marriage, in uh, clans and other traditional you know, uh, community uh, settings, 
uh, this is a very important space in which power operates. And you only understand this when you look at it through a gender lens. Yeah. Because that's when you see that women, women's access to power is first controlled here. Right. And so you can make all the great laws that you want. You can give all the quotas that you like, you know, for women to get elected or get jobs or whatever. But if this family space, for instance, or the marital space is controlling her access, her decision-making power, her choices, and her labor, how can she access those? And then I think they made us aware, of course, that we shouldn't look at power as always something external. And this is, again, for me, is a very feminist way of looking at power is the power within the self. Mm. That's how we think about self. So, and that's Mm. how we think about the self and what we believe we can do. Mm. And here I always think of my grandmother, you know, because this explains the phenomenon of why sometimes the poorest people, the poorest women who seem most oppressed, most excluded, most marginalized, but yet... They have the self-esteem, they have the confidence, they have the agency, as we mm-hmm. like to say in the Ingo world, yeah, to go out there and challenge everything. And that's what my grandmother did. Yeah. She had nothing in terms of material assets or much of a voice in the family, but she raised me as a feminist. And she believed in her power, in yeah. her internal power, and she used it to make a lot of you know, move a lot of mountains in her life. Yeah, yeah. So I think this the key thing that I'll close with is that, you know, uh, the work of Fenn and Miller and others has made us realize that we can't just focus on visible power. We have, as feminists and as leaders, we have to look at how power operates in hidden ways and most importantly, in invisible ways. Yes. And I'll say more about that when we talk about organizations and power. Oh, super, super. So, so interesting. And we were both smiling when you talked about your grandmother. This is not visible, of course, to a podcast listener, but um, it, it made me happy to imagine her. Um, now, you yes. have... Um, are there parallels, Rilata, in how you just described that social power shows up in society and how it shows up within organizations? Can you give some examples maybe of those parallels? Well, uh, a simple example is um, the way visible and hidden power operate in organizations. Yeah, Visible power is, you know, what is the clear transparent sort of hierarchy or structure mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Uh, of the hierarchy uh, who does what you know who has what kind of decision making power who controls the resources and uh, those sort of decision making so you have that very transparent uh, hierarchy mm. but the truth is as we all know and we, as we've all experienced there are several hidden ways in which power actually operates in organizations, which often has little to do with the way it is formally set up. Yes. So I'll give you a very simple example uh, of perhaps somebody who is the executive assistant to the director Mm -hmm. of the organization. Okay. Mm -hmm. 
so in the hierarchy this is quite a i mean it's a it's a it's a it's an important role but it's not a kind of role with a lot of visible power right mm-hmm. you're just the executive assistant but i know of case after case where this executive assistant has been around for a lot longer than the director yeah okay it's like i've seen directors come and go my dear for many <laughs> years yeah and that is the guy or the woman who knows how to operate that system yeah and they also know how to manipulate the director yes okay so that is part of what you call the deep structure or the hidden structure of the organization mm-hmm. you have a policy i'll give another example of zero tolerance of sexual harassment excellent you know a uh, 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 grievance uh, mechanism that's set up mm-hmm. and then when you go and examine how that mechanism works you discover that there are built in ways in which hidden power is operating for example the person reporting sexual harassment has to first report to their supervisor yeah what if the supervisor is the person harassing you mm-hmm. there is no mechanism created for dealing with this mm-hmm. you know so that's where the formal policy and the formal structure and the informal ways in which that structure is being manipulated or uh you know used to protect yeah the hierarchy of power there is very yeah. different so these are just two concrete examples and i love that i was actually going to ask you a question about the work on deep structure that aruna david you and others have have uh, developed and because i love uh, using that in my work on on senior leadership training um so let me go right there um so you told us a little bit how you analyze some facets of deep structure organizations and just for our audience i can from a slide that um i have um used in in your work some other examples of deep structures is the uh, actual versus the stated work norms right so we say we are about one particular norm but actually some other behaviors are are more rewarded um uh things like spreading rumors etc that are a way of of exerting power informal groups and cliques you already referred to that and unstated personal biases um these are all examples of these deep structures now and not just biases tosca mm-hmm. if i can mm-hmm. interrupt sure i've realized now more recently in the last uh, couple of years with all the stuff that's come out about embedded racism mm. and sexism inside organizations it's also the embedded sense of privilege so it's biases right. and internalized privilege yes internalized privilege yeah yeah well said so we can analyze these forms of deep structures and and expressions of social power in organization but what can a feminist leader do to maneuver around them or to engage with them in a way of of um 
um, not in in a way of getting beyond them as an organization. What can we do to not just analyze but also maneuver politically within these deep structures in order to get the work done that the feminist leader cares about? Well, I think uh, we wrote quite a lot about this in the Feminist Leadership Toolkit, uh, which Michelle Friedman from Gender Work and I did, uh, and that's also available on the CREA website. So we'll reference that in the show notes. Yeah. Uh, I think just to, you know, put it uh, sort of succinctly and more simply, A feminist leader deals with deep structure by bringing it to the surface. Okay. See, the power of deep structure is as long as it remains hidden, Mm. unnamed, unrecognized, and unaddressed. Mm. That's how it thrives. Now, as long as we are human beings and not pre-programmed robots who build organizations. Mm-hmm. Deep structure is always going to exist. Mm-hmm. The point is how deep will you let it be? How murky, how ugly, how destructive will you let it become? I think the point is that a feminist leader recognizes its existence. It doesn't matter whether it's a man, woman, trans, intersex person who is a leader. If they are feminist leaders, they will first of all recognize its existence and they will put in motion mechanisms to bring them to the surface. There are several of these. One simple mechanism is, of course, the 360 degree assessments. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. 360 degree assessments always bring to the surface a lot of deep structure dynamics, and then nobody deals with them. So Mm. that's a different story, okay? Uh, Two, I think you have to build into uh, uh, your annual cycle an organizational culture environment survey. When I worked with AVID, we used to have this survey done every two years by an external agency, we know with competency in doing this and that helped the organization assess the quality of the working environment inside. They would ask us simple things like when you wake up in the morning and it's a working day, do you think, Oh no, I have to go to work. Or do you say, yes, today I'm going to do X, Y, Z. Therein hangs a tale. Okay, Mm. so assessing the quality of the internal environment is hugely important. And that's what a feminist leader will prioritize. The fact is that today, especially in the Ingo world, everybody is driven by targets, by, you know, project deadlines, by deliverables, by results. And, you know, you, you go out in the world with all this wonderful rhetoric about social justice and equality and transformation, and your inside sucks. Your inside system right. is actually full of pathology. Maybe I'm exaggerating to make a point. No, yeah? it's all right. So a feminist, yeah, a feminist leader understands that 
the feminist transformation has to begin there mm. because I have a very simple motto. If I say another world is possible, but I cannot enable people to experience that other world yeah. in this small little space of the organization, yeah. why should they believe it's possible right. in larger society? Right. They won't. So making it visible and the third thing they will do is to make people accountable, especially people in positions of formal authority. Make them accountable for the quality of the working environment. There are more than enough tools in the human resource management yes. toolbox to do all of this. Yeah, yeah. And finally, I would say they need to initiate interesting and innovative new systems and not just rely on the good old ways of doing things. Mm. I myself have did a lot of experiments of this kind. For instance, uh, how a feminist leader is interested in how power is shared and used within the organization, not just outside. Yeah. Mm. So one form of power, for instance, is who designs budgets, who determines what the uh, project uh, deliverables are, etc. So the minute you start opening up those processes and making them more participatory, yeah. to use a very sad, tired, old word, but <laughs> still a meaningful one, yeah, and you start making entire teams accountable for the deliverables. Mm -hmm. That's one. I did a simple experiment. I said, all cleaning tasks in the organization will go by rotation. So I was the executive director and I had my once every 10 days duty of cleaning the office, right. both in the morning and at the end of the day. Right. I introduced something very radical in our culture, which is everybody had to wash their own dishes and plates. Mm. Otherwise, there's always some poor oppressed woman who's employed to do that menial job. Yeah. I reversed the way uh, leave is sanctioned. You know, when you take leave or take mm -hmm. vacation time, it's not your supervisor who will sanction your leave. It's the people who will be affected by your absence who will sanction your leave. So you purposely turn power on its head. Reverse, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. exactly. Interesting. And these were experiments. We didn't have any individual leadership. We always had collective leadership of our teams. Mm -hmm. You know, so you just start, uh, you know, dispersing power, including my own. Like what are the things that I could decide about without yeah. consulting anybody was practically nothing. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. we set up those policies together. We created mm -hmm. them together. Mm -hmm. We analyzed them together. We decided what worked and what wasn't. Right. And we changed. So you experimented with these turning things upside down and then you reviewed together what, what that did to the organization and decided uh, what, how to go forward with that. Um, so let me ask you two more questions. One is that um, I could imagine there are situations where there's a tension between what an organizational leader in a civil society organization 
what types of leadership model they have in their head coming from their national culture. So whether that is Dutch culture, I'm from the Netherlands originally, whether that's American culture, Indian culture, whatever, um, that there are tensions between uh, what expectations about leadership behaviors come from national culture and what is expected from a feminist leader once an organization has officially adopted feminist leadership as a model, if you will, as a framework. Have you seen those tensions show up? And talk to me, will you please, about how should we resolve that? Well, again, you know, of course, these tensions arise. I can give several examples in my own experience. The classic thing in South Asian culture is the reproduction of familial relationships and familial hierarchies in the workspace. Mm. And that, and of course, caste hierarchies, mm-hmm. familial and caste hierarchies in the workplace. Okay. So the people in formal authority are the upper castes and, you know, should not be questioned. And they don't do the dirty work either. Mm. And then, you know, down the, the caste hierarchy, uh, you know, get less and less voice, less and less power, less and less right to question. Uh, a culture in which questioning, especially of those in authority, those higher up in the hierarchy is simply not acceptable. That's considered, you know, uh, extremely uh, uh, not not just, uh, it's like it's violating the cultural norm, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. If they are senior, they must be wiser, they know more than you. If they're older, they are wiser, they know more than you. You know, mm. this age hierarchy intersecting with caste, and gender hierarchy and class hierarchy, it's a mess. (laughs) So all the time I was asked, I was told by my team in the women's empowerment program that I headed from which a lot of my examples come. But you know, you are our mother. Mm. You must look after us. You must tell us what to do. You must forgive us when we make mistakes. Like, you know, I disappeared. I didn't go to the field for 15 days. Uh, the grassroots women were just coming to meetings and going home and I never showed up. You mm-hmm. must forgive me because you're my mother. I made a mistake. Mm. So I worked very hard to break that uh, uh, imagery and that cultural expectation that I should be the parent and therefore they can behave like children mm. and be naughty. Mm-hmm. And I had to set up accountability systems and there sadly I had to use my hierarchical power in a very top-down way yeah yeah and that troubled me but I I justified it to myself saying I'm doing it for this better end to achieve a justifiable end I say no from now on you are accountable to the grassroots women Mm. Not to me. I don't care whether you show up or you don't show up. And if I get consistently three complaints from them that you're not showing up, you're not doing your work at the community level, sorry. You know, you have to go. And if I do it, if I fail in my response, I used to initiate an annual assessment of my performance Mm -hmm. by my team, Mm. you know, 
And it was a big struggle to shift that culture. So I think the key is, and for me, not, okay, let me give another example. The mm-hmm. grassroots women, when they were collectivized and you know this huge movement was built, largely oppressed caste women and indigenous women. And the idol worship culture is very strong, right? Mm. So they uh, asked me very innocently one day, the women are asking for a photograph of you. Mm. Luckily, my feminist antenna was very sharp. And I said, why? What do they want to photograph for? This is in the days before smartphones and mm-hmm. all that, right? Mm-hmm. You actually needed a camera to take yeah. a photograph. I said, why do they want a photograph? Oh, because they want to put a picture of you in their meeting hall. Mm. Yeah. And I said, no. I said, no. Why do they want to put a picture? Oh, because they feel you are the reason that they have gained so much. I said, no, they are the reason that Mm. they have gained. It's their power. It's their getting organized. So I will issue cameras to each district office. You will take photographs of the women of each village collected, and that photograph will be put in the meeting center. Mm. Because the symbolism is so important. This is it. So you have to be constantly, constantly vigilant because it was so easy for me to succumb. Yeah. And many, many, I'm sad to say, many so-called feminist leaders do succumb because this cultural dimension is so deeply embedded. It's so uninterrogated. Mm that they think feminist politics is about pro-choice or anti-choice or about, you know, uh, abortion rights or, you know, uh, yeah, uh, equal inheritance laws. They don't think it's about how they are conducting themselves Mm. or how people within the organization conduct themselves or how they use their power and how they enable others to use or misuse their power. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry, that was a very long answer to it's all right. Question. It's it's very interesting because it ultimately gets also to the ego, I think. Um, but let me move to my last question because we're almost out of time. So it's actually kind of going, not going back to basics, but it is my observation, at least anecdotally, that early on when I observed some uh INGOs who wanted to introduce feminist leadership, there was actually quite a bit of confusion within the organization amongst managers and leaders about the difference, the distinction between women in development and in development programming, gender and leadership, and feminist leadership. So tell us a little bit about the distinctions between those three Where are they distinct and where do they overlap? Well, first of all, it saddens me to have to even explain this. uh, Because to me, it's a sign of exactly why Kriya focuses so much on conceptual clarity in our Mm. trainings. Mm. Because this to me displays a lack of conceptual clarity. Yes, it is. uh, At a very deep level. Okay. What is development is totally different from what is gender, is totally different from what is feminism. 
But particularly, I noticed um, some sustained confusion on the difference between women in development, right? Or yes. women in, power, in poverty, for instance. One, two, gender and leadership. And three, feminist leadership. Those three were, were uh, confused. Have you yeah. observed that yeah, early I on? I think I can, I can address this um, quite uh, simply and in a very straightforward way. I think it's because of a very uh, strong but natural confusion that occurred uh, because of the big push, especially, you know, in the 80s and 90s to get women into leadership. Mm. That is biological women into leadership. Mm -hmm. Okay. Which really had, I mean, yes, it was a feminist agenda because out of a simple of simple principle of equality and equity, there was a call for having uh, 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 equal representation in say, for instance, political bodies or key decision-making bodies of women because mm -hmm. they had been totally excluded from these mm -hmm. spaces. And I think that has created this confusion mm. because uh, there is confusion around, so I, do, I don't even know what gender leadership means. I have no idea what they're talking about, so I can't address that. But I can tell you that it's, it's the confusion is about the, uh, the, the concept that somehow feminist leadership is about women in leadership. Mm. Or it's about interrogating the gender parity in leadership. So maybe that's what they mean by gender leadership. Um, because, you know, it's like when people say gender empowerment, I want to scream and say, so you want to empower gender, make more gender different? What the hell are you talking about, you know? So I think this is where the confusion has come. It's about getting more women into positions of leadership. And then it's about advancing gender equality through leadership, you know, leadership yes. sort of uh, embracing the idea of advancing gender equality. But feminist leadership is totally different because a feminist leadership is no more about women than being a socialist or a pro-Marxist or pro-Gandhian is about being male. Mm -hmm. See, as I always tell my participants, feminist leadership, feminism is an ideology. It's a social change strategy. Mm -hmm. And it is about opening the door and examining power in all the hidden spaces where it has been. So it's, it is a, an ideology, but it's more importantly, it's a social change uh, approach or methodology mm -hmm. that goes deeper than any other. It doesn't stop at the door. It opens the door. It goes inside. It looks at all forms of exclusion. Mm. So a feminist leadership is about advancing a feminist vision of social justice. Right. You don't need particular sexual organs to do that. You get it. Yes. I can be uh, a cis male, an intersex person, uh, a cis female, a trans 
man or woman, and I can be a feminist leader Mm -hmm. because it's about that vision of change and it's about those values and principles in the way I lead. In the way I lead. In the way I lead. It's about Mm -hmm. sharing power, practicing those values and practicing that politics in every space that I occupy, private or public. Yeah. Personal is political. Good old feminist uh, problem. Still, still relevant. And so I would say that the biggest myth of all is the one that says, I'll conclude with this, that because I lead a feminist organization, I'm a feminist leader. No. Mm. Or because I lead a social justice organization, I'm a socially just leader. No, Mm. it's not that simple. I like that very much. That is a good uh, uh, myth to uh, to debunk at the very end of this interview. Well, thank you so much, Srilata, for all your insights. Uh, super interesting. And thank you, listeners. If you found this podcast stimulating, then please help other social sector leaders find my podcast by leaving a review on your favorite uh, podcast platform. Um, Also, if you're interested in exploring more um, of the leadership models, including feminist leadership, uh, as well as others, we have a chapter in our book, Between Power and Irrelevance, the Future of Transnational NGOs, that was just published last year, that um, has that chapter about our observations on leadership and leadership development in the INGO sector, including some significant leadership blind spots as we see them. You can find more information about our book as well as uh, the other work that I spearhead on fiveoaksconsulting.org. Thank you again, Srilata. This is Tosca, and I look forward to spending time with you on NGO, Soul and Strategy next time. Thanks for listening to my podcast. If you valued the content, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, so that other leaders of social change organizations can find it too. And if you want to learn more, have a look at my website, fiveoaksconsulting.org, where you will find blog posts, recordings of interviews with me, as well as information about my co-authored book, Between Power and Irrelevance the future of transnational NGOs. If you sign up for my email list, you will receive a free sneak peek at the book. Or feel free to email me at tosca at fiveoaksconsulting.org or contact me through my website. And follow me on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Till we talk again at NGO Soul & Strategy the podcast for NGO leaders and managers who look change right in the eye.